Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. Thank you for joining me for my latest cruise around the lives, the hearts, the minds of some of the great theatrical artists as we try to unpack what it is they do, how they do it, and why. Why do they do it? Well, my guest this week has some unpacking to do. He is, hands down, one of our finest stage actors. He won the Olivier nominated for a Tony, should have won it, for one of 21st century's greatest theatrical creations. Anyone who saw the mega-musical Matilda will not easily forget Bertie Carvel's performance as Miss Trunchbull, the trunch. (laughs) It's seared into the collective memory. He played a woman, he's not one, twice his age, and in doing so, created this sort of almost mythic reputation for these transformations. He then won another Olivier, and finally the Tony that was justly his, for playing Rupert Murdoch in James Graham's play about the rise of tabloid journalism in the UK called Inc. He then played Donald Trump, and anybody seeing photographs of Bertie Carvel as Donald Trump could swear that you're looking at the real horror. He played uh, Tony Blair. He played Nick Clegg. He has this reputation for these extraordinarily chameleonic transformations. So when we first met in his dressing room at the Old Vic in London earlier this year, when he had just opened a production of George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion playing Henry Higgins, um, I was thrilled to finally find out what he really did look like. And it was fascinating to talk to Bertie. Really really fascinating. Of all the guests I've had, all the deep thinkers about theatre, of whom all my guests have really spent a lifetime thinking about what they do, of course, and thinking about it very deeply, Bertie, I think, tried to engage with the remit of the podcast the most intensely. He was a fan, is a fan of the podcast, very sweetly. He told me he listens to it before we started uh, recording and is a enjoys the chance to hear other artists talk about how they do what they do. His engagement with trying to express himself was so moving to me because it felt like you were taking the top of the skull off an artist at this very particular moment of creation and seeing all the teeming ideas inside that cranium, all the synapses that were firing in a million different ways. It was like looking under the bonnet of a 
great high performance Formula One racing car and then having the, <laughs> the great driver try to explain exactly how this amazingly complex machine works. <laughs> it was thrilling to hear him try to engage with it and constantly frustrate himself with not being able to articulate it. But to me, it felt like a brilliant evocation of what an artist is going through at that moment, if you happen to be Bertie Carvel and if you happen to think about it as deeply as he does and if you happen to be as articulate as he is. I'm so grateful that he gave me that time and that honesty. It was really special to talk to him. Now, if you like London and the Old Vic, who doesn't? Um, you're going to be very happy because quite a lot of London and the Old Vic enters into this podcast recording. It's not a hermetically sealed aural space, let me just say that. But I hope it adds a bit of colour. Oh, also I should thank Bertie for um, being magnificently sanitary. He began our conversation by freshening up. Here is the great Bertie Carvel just out of the shower. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Carvel and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your beginner's. You've just had a shower, which I, well, I mean, I was only very proximate to being in the next room from your little ensuite bathroom here in your... felt very intimate, um, showering with just the one tiny door between us when we've only just met. Was it wrong of me to... But I somehow feel I can trust you to... um, Sure. Not press charges? No. (laughs) Read read anything into it beyond my need for it. You came out fully clothed. To be washed. Well, I was slightly hoping for a fluffy robe and a prawn cocktail. Well, what can I say? <laughs> Maybe I could come back later. Things could be different. I can't go on stage without a bluting before a show. Yeah. Are you the same? Yeah, I do like a shower before and after. And I was sort of thinking as I was thinking, God, this is a peculiar thing to do. And I was 10 minutes late for our appointment and then asked if I could take <laughs> but it's I think what's good about it is that it's a bit like I change clothes when I get into the rehearsal room because otherwise you're sort of carrying all of your rhythm into something that requires concentration and focus and it's quite good to have something that's just um, slightly ritualized like washing or changing your clothes yeah that just puts a kind of separation between the ca- kind of whatever chaotic state you might be in walking in which yeah. doesn't say you should like leave all of that at the door because you know, that's who you are or whatever. but just to kind of take a take a moment to concentrate so I think that's what it's about and, and that's, that's why I'm very grateful that you didn't roll your eyes <laughs> <laughs> I was delighted for you to do it so every day in the rehearsal room you'll have a little change from your street clothes yeah, into always. something to rehearse it. Yeah, I don't yeah, like rehearsing in my clothes. Not least because, of the, I mean, you, the way you stand is so affected by what you wear. And it's not even that the clothes have to be appropriate to the part, although it's sort of nice if they are often. But even just by changing clothes, you acknowledge that, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but the sorts of clothes, I don't pay very much attention to what I wear until I suddenly do and feel very self-conscious, but I sort of always look like I've been dragged through a hedge backwards and that I'm very comfortable in that place. But that's not necessarily the inner body that the character should have. And there's something about a pair of kind of jeans and an old T-shirt or whatever it is that you walk into the rehearsal room in that includes at quite a deep level who you are and how you've been wearing yourself, right? And if you can just sort of scrub that out and put something else on, 
I usually rehearse in the same suit that I've had for years and years and years. And it's often appropriate to the character, but often not. But it doesn't have to be that, you know, just to put another set of clothes on. I think mm. it's quite... I've never gone full leotard, but I quite like, you know, the principle behind a leotard or whatever, I guess, is that you just strip everything right back to the body. And <laughs> like the idea of rehearsing in a, a body sock, maybe I'll try that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that would that would definitely give you a different relationship to whatever character you're playing and perhaps everybody else a different I think that might be you. the barrier yeah I think yeah. everyone else might be. well this relates a little bit to one of the things I really wanted to ask you or talk about which is I'm so happy to meet you because I don't think I think I would remember I don't think we've ever met before I don't think we've met I can't tell you the number of people who've asked me do you know Jonathan Cake and I, I just <laughs> I remember, remember that I remember that phrase being asked of me I can't remember in what context, but That's many, strange. many people have said that. I think we've got many people, probably in many people in common. Yeah, well. I think you live long enough. In my case, you can't help but have people in common with sort yeah. of anybody. One of the myriad reasons I'm really happy to meet you is that I can finally find out what you look like, and I'm not exaggerating when I say googling you is like sort of googling the most wanted man in the West or something. Every single photograph of you, and I'm not talking about the, you know, the famous transformations for Trump or Murdoch or Nick Clegg or whoever. I'm, t I'm just talking about you. They're all subtly or not so subtly different. You look extremely different. The internet essentially can't agree <laughs> on what you look like. And this business of you talking about, you know, a ritual that changes your appearance or your, your, your sense of yourself to do the work. Is that something you've always had, that sort of chameleonic um, impulse? I started out, um, before I was an actor, my hobby growing up was live role-playing. Do you know what that is? No. Um, L LARP LARPing. The, LARPing? It, yeah, I don't know why the term LARPing has never pleased me but it is LARPing <laughs> LARPing stands for live action role playing yeah. so that's why LARPing somehow it sounds like a sex act LARKing around right. or sort of I don't know why it doesn't float my boat anyway um, I did that every weekend from the age of about 12 till kind of you know university did at you? least and um, for, for weeks on end in the summer it's essentially acting for no audience. You, you're um, inhabiting a character that you've created yourself. It's improvised with a kind of highly structured rules for things like combat and spell casting and whatever, and kind of resolving situations that might need some kind of referee. But essentially, it's entirely freeform storytelling. So its, it's closest cousin is like a, an acting improvisation. And I would be a different character every weekend, sometimes multiple characters in one day, because, you know, the basic format is that there are players who play their characters that they've kind of loved and played and created over, you know, some time. And, you know, maybe it's just that week they can't wait to play the character for the first time and they've got a new costume or whatever. Or maybe it's the character they've been playing for years and developing a history and whatever. And then there's a like a team of other people who we called monsters, who are playing all the other parts. And there's somebody who would be designated as a referee or a games master or whatever you might want to call it. 
who would set up the scenario and essentially use this cast of monsters, these other participants, to populate the world and the story that they had sketched out. And then the players would freely move through that, bumping into those encounters that had been prearranged. And it was at times simple, but often very, very complex. Anyway, as a consequence of that, I would... It sort of just came very natural. I didn't do any acting at that mm. age. So when I first came to do acting, it felt really familiar. But I suppose it's a long-winded way of saying that what comes very naturally to me is the kind of being someone else bit. And that comes so naturally that I, I sometimes do it without even meaning to. So, for example, in this part I'm playing at the moment, one of the reasons I was keen to do it was that it was an opportunity to possibly do something that was less grossly transformational than other work I've done. Mm. However, I find myself kind of without really trying, finding sort of, uh, I mean, it sounds really grand, but I'm going to call it a different inner body. And because that's what the job is. And then without trying that, affects the way my actual physical outer body is so i find myself often doing much um, more sort of grosser bigger more transformational performances than i really intend to and then if i'm disciplined strip it back away again sometimes or or else just fall in love with it and keep it whatever and then then having discovered that about myself i kind of realized that that was something that i could do interestingly and people seem to commend me for and I think I went through a long phase of going oh right that's my magic trick and that's what I'll do and I'll find opportunities to really take take on big challenges to go like, to me it's 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 really easy to impress people when the character you're playing is superficially different from you mm. because people can kind of see the acting and so they go oh my god he doesn't look like that at all like how that's amazing what an amazing actor and that feels quite good frankly because mm. it's nice to be told you're a good actor but it's actually, no, as you know, no different to the act of transformation that happens when you're playing somebody who's superficially very similar to you because they are still not you and you have to still... So the kind of inner transformation, if it's any good, still has to happen. And I definitely think that I've sort of went through a phase of exploiting the fact that I seemed to be able to do the shapeshifty thing. I hope that's not all that's making it good. Right. You know, I think the reason it's good is not just that you seem to be able to pull off playing somebody who's, you know, the opposite gender and twice your age, for example, but that the, the reason that you're convincing in that transformation is that something else is happening, which is more like a secret source thing. Yeah. And it's harder to describe what yeah. that is, but that's what good acting is. And it's present in somebody doing a physically very restrained or, or, you know, I don't know, let's call it naturalistic or do you know what I mean? Totally, and I'm slightly obsessed totally. with this because it's, it, it's two ways around the same problem. I, I think that, um, sorry, I've talked too much. No, 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 you definitely haven't. You've explained an extraordinary, fascinating thing, which if I may say, I haven't read about you before. So I'm thrilled. <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting and it, now it's quite sort of, I don't know if it's cool, but it's sort of almost mainstream. People know what it is. Sure. When I was growing up, no one even knew right. what Dungeons and Dragons was really. But what it sounds like is it sounds like, you know, it's become involuntary in a way. Habitual, definitely habitual. Right. I don't know if it's involuntary because I, oh. I don't know, the sat splitting hairs really. But that's an interesting point because 
I was thinking last night about the, the extent to which I think when you, I've heard you talk about flow state in your interviews and I, I sort of really relate to that, what I think you mean by that. When you're in that state of relaxation or basically when things are going well, I think there is a kind of involuntary, you know, something takes you over. In, let's call it inspiration. So it's sort of involuntary, but part of what makes it really exciting is you're also aware of it and you can repeat it. I mean, because a lot of what we do on stage is about repetition. And when I trained, somehow I got to thinking that a naturalism was, was sort of king. You, because people talk about this idea of truth and as a sort of young person, you go, Oh God, am I being honest? Am I being true? You get really in your own way when you feel like you're doing any acting. That can't be right. Because when you're in that flow state, you're really acting. And right. You're acting for all your worth. But it's you're connecting to some kind of a higher truth. It's, it's going well. I'm constantly sympathetic to talking about this stuff at all. I do think it's like asking a great athlete to describe how they ran the 100 meters so fast or how they scored their goal. I think it's quite antithetical to what we do, to put it into imperfect language. When you're talking yeah. about connecting to something, uh, some higher truth, it doesn't really need much more elucidation than that because there can't quite be one. Do you know what I mean? It sort of feels like it goes beyond the ability to describe it in some ways. You're right, it's very hard to talk about this stuff, but I'm so thrilled that you give the space. What I love about these interviews you're doing is that you're giving the space... If you talk about this stuff in in interviews generally, even if a journalist is interested and wants to give you space, which generally they do right. to sort of talk about your craft or your yeah. art or whatever, yeah. it always gets subbed totally. down and reduced. And probably that's right because, you know, he wants to hear a turn banging on about the art of acting. But there is a space for it, and this is that space, right? And it, it really it means a lot to us, doesn't it? It you really know, this, does. Our, our lives work to some extent. And, and if even though it's hard to talk about, I'm glad that you try to get people to do it because um, one of the things that f is frustrating is that somehow in the being of an actor, you learn in a way to be less of a wanker because you want to appear not to be a wanker. I totally appreciate you saying that. And I think I'm sort of militantly committed to giving us the right to talk about it. You don't have to, people don't have to listen if they think we're being self-indulgent. But I think any art form, possibly any profession, but, but let's talk about art forms of which acting is one. Any art form done as well as you do it is fascinating to hear someone wrestle with how it's done. You know, when I was starting out, in the theatre, I would have loved to have had a resource where I could hear you, someone like you, talk about how you do what you do. The limitations even of talking about how you do what you do. It would have been immensely instructive and it would have been immensely inspiring. So if only for that, do you know what I mean? I'm yeah. committed to this idea of just getting away from this English disease of thinking artists talking about their art is somehow... Yeah bullshit or yeah. derisory or sort of asking for attention or egotistical. Yeah. It's an extraordinarily valuable thing, which people pay a lot of money to come and see and see done well. Why shouldn't we yeah. talk about it? And I think it is really empowering to hear, you know, listening to good interviews with artists, the thing that tends to come through is on the one hand, they're amazing 
Tyrant, if you are amazing. around, would you be able to move the truck upstairs, please? Thank you. Tyrant needs to move the truck. It's lovely theatre character, it's isn't good. it? Some yeah. flavour. But the other thing that really comes across usually is that everybody's just sort of like figuring it out. And that's really inspiring when you're kind of on your way up to hear that people who are doing it something at a really higher level are still kind of just questing towards, they don't really necessarily know what they're doing. Maybe they do. And so on some things, you know, you, you've, you've thought a lot about and, are, and may be able to be articulate about, but on the whole, everybody's just sort of following their noses. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm, but coming back to your thing about the inv- involuntary thing. So I think that something does happen when you're, when you're, the reason, you know, one loves rehearsal is that you're sort of freely exploring. You set off in a certain direction to try and test something out and something happens that's exciting. And then part of the artistry or the craft of it is to be able to record, like to have a, on like an in-flight recorder that goes, that went well. What about that was good? How do I repeat it? And I, I mean, I think one of the things I take a lot of pride in is having a good black box. So having a, a good instinct some sometimes it's intellectual but more often it's sort of for physical instinct basically being able to to dance the same steps again and it doesn't just mean making the same physical shapes it means make it i mean i I know it sounds really grand but i'm quite fond of this term i've come up with about the inner body because there's there's some kind of inner shape that you can make that reproduces the outer shape faithfully what i mean by that is if like if anybody ever goes to see a takeover of a musical often you see somebody who has been uh, an actor has been given no opportunity to create the inner body of the character mm. uh, well in fact their job is to create the inner body but they, they must do all the same steps as the originating actor they sing the same notes they perform the scene scenes with the same tempo because it's usually got the same underscore they sort of hit the same acting beats. And it's an incredibly difficult job, like that of a, a dancer who's given a choreography, because they have to breathe life, they have to give an inner body to something that already has an outer shape. Whereas when you're originating a role, if you start with what is happening on the inside, what happens on the outside arrives as a result of that. And then you go, that was good. And the reason that was good is because I was feeling something like this or and then you can start to pick apart what made you feel that way so that you kind of get is this making any sense totally well i mean no it makes sense to you but like i wonder if it makes sense to a listener i might be being a bit esoteric i guess what i'm saying is that the obligation to be able to repeat stuff doesn't just mean that you kind of go well i had my left foot out and I, you know this was the blocking we did often if you just repeat a blocking it's lifeless but if you repeat a kind of inner pattern and try and marry it to the same blocking. You kind of figure something out about the scene, right? And so what I guess I want to say about the physical shape thing is that sometimes a physical transformation happens, perhaps to a certain extent involuntarily, through instinct, through inspiration. Mm -hmm. And then people respond to it. And if one's not careful you can fall in love with that shape and lose the kind of thing that generated it in the first place. And I've just gone through this process where, you know, the reviews from the show are out and I, the moment I just decided, oh, I'm going to read reviews, not, not read them. And so what's difficult is when people describe your performance and it's something you know you're doing because you're doing it, mm. but you become conscious of the outer thing 
that somebody has commented on. And you if, have been reading them. If you're not, yeah. Uh -huh. And if you're not careful, you might go, oh, I must keep that, or I, or I'm not sure. I've never been sure about that, and it becomes disconnected from the reason you did it in the first place, right. which should continue to grow. And I, I feel like I've disappeared such a long way up my own ass. I can't get back. I'm like way upstream, but it's kind of thrilling talking about this stuff. No, it's fascinating. Did you make a conscious decision to read these, or do you always read them? Um, I do now. I, I once was very disciplined and didn't, and they were good. And I was aware that they were good, and I was aware of, for an entire run, standing outside a billboard with, like, good reviews on, not looking at them. And it just felt so kind of, <laughs> it felt sort of weirdly, like, that wasn't the point. Your reviews are always good, by the way. You're, well, you're, having done true, some research, well, okay. But having done some research, which I always love doing, you know, you're one of the, the best reviewed actors I've ever interviewed. They're just extraordinary in every single, well, the ones I've seen. But is they there something really damaging and uh, good reviews as, as much as bad reviews yes. because you and and I guess this is why it kind of in my massive monologue it popped up because we're talking I guess about instinct and what arises involuntarily through instinct or perhaps not involuntarily but what arises when you're connected to your instincts or your action or objective or your scene partner or whatever and then our job is to pick and mix from those discoveries in rehearsal and hold on to the things that are good and figure out how to keep them feeling as animate and as exciting when it's not something you've just invented as it was when you first did it in the rehearsal room. That's the job. And that, that must involve a certain amount of technique because you can't have the experience of inventing it more than once. You can trick yourself, I think, into, into feeling like it's invented. And you can invent other stuff around it that keeps the kind of freshness. But but audiences, if they're discerning, and, and even if they're not, I think are alert to that breath of life. And when it goes, they know the thing can remain good, but it can never really be electric or, you know, great, can it? Unless there's some breath of freshness and life. And the problem with reviews is that, or any kind of feedback, actually, it's, it's why I said when I was saying about giving actors notes, I didn't mean actors giving other actors notes. I meant like when as a director, if you're giving an actor a note, you've got to be really careful around the stuff that's good. Because sometimes it, even if you just tell someone something's good, it can break it mm. because they know that already on some level. Mm. If they've done it more than once and they're still doing it, you've got to be really careful to, if you're going to fuck with that because... They're doing it again and again because they know it's good. Mm. And if you sort of press on it, it can go anywhere. And so that's why good reviews, I think, can be really difficult. But if you don't read them, I find, I certainly don't want to read them the day after we've closed and then have that be the last word. So I'm either never going to read them or I'm going to read them, try and make my peace with them, try not to attach too much significance to them. But it's really hard work because if somebody writes a, a nice line about something which is already precious to you in your performance, the thing that you were doing because you loved it becomes a thing that you're doing because someone else loved it. Mm. And it sort of breaks the connection and what can mm. kind of break the connection between what you were doing anyway. Mm. Or you go, oh, they like that. And, and it sort of over dominates, you know, because the performance is 
a thousand and one little details, isn't it? And the art is in getting the kind of graphic equalizer of all of those details just right so that you're telling an overarching story as, at the same time as hitting beat by beat by beat. <laughs> so in terms of... Stop me it's, it's, no, no, this is fantastic. I love, I love listening to you talk about it. In, in terms of tonight's performance, let's just talk about that, where, where you are right now. Is there anything lodging in your brain Anything, anything you're stubbing your toe against, anything you're thinking about in relation to where you are with metabolizing the reviews or not? Is there anything you're conscious of in terms of what you want to do tonight? Or does it not really work like that? I'm probably going to regret saying this, but there's this notion of character acting, isn't there? Which I guess means playing people who look different. And I'm very happy to call myself a character actor. I'm, I'm, I've proudly embraced character acting i really enjoy transformation i enjoy the skill of being able to persuade you people you know the internet that i know as what i look like i love that i feel very very happy about that and it's not actually any different to whatever its opposite is in my view but i think that the danger the pitfall for a character actor is that if you have the ability to kind of uh transform yourself and to figure out to have a kind of a good black box that, that records the little details of things that you discover and can repeat those. If you're not careful, you can just end up kind of doing a performance of your performance. Mm. You figure out how it works and you do it to a really high fidelity kind of copy of all the best bits of every time you've done it up till now. And that is really skillful and it's often enjoyable to watch. But there's something better than that, which is the kind of the thing that you get the first time you did it, which is when it's it's like the, the meeting place of instinct, hard work, the other actors, the play, all arriving in a happy accident of sort of, of wonderful genius creation. And in order to be open to that continuing to happen, I find that if I'm too tightly controlled in terms of what I'm doing and the shapes that I'm making it leaves a lot less space for accident, of course, because you're being really deliberate and really mindful about every point on the graph. And so the battleground often is to go like, do I, do I kill my babies? And, 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 you, and, you, and I, I think increasingly I'm happy to do that, not least because this is why reviews are helpful. Like, Reviews kill your babies for you because uh. they tell you all the things that you already loved and then they slightly break them. And then you have to go back to the drawing board and go like, well, that's never going to feel as good now because every time I do that thing with my tongue, I just think about that, that, that reviewer liked it, that reviewer found it too much or whatever. And it's, when it was beautiful, it was, it was not involuntary, yeah. but it was inspired. Yeah. And now it's just something someone's noticed and it's like you, change the path of the photon by looking at it like you can't do that again it's not ever gonna now i can still i can still do it and some nights i'll be like no fuck them it was good i'm gonna keep it but i'm more interested in trying to let go of those things not least because they weren't what was good they were the shape uh, that what was good made on that night right good or bad yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and sometimes somebody can attach to something like re reviewers often have a s make a complete misdiagnosis of the way something's made. Why shouldn't they? Because they, don't, they weren't there when it was made. But, you know, they'll credit the 
you know, like the movement director with the movement and the, the dialect coach with the dialect and the, I don't know what they think actors do, but like, do you, do you know what I mean? It's very like, oh, well, that person designed the set. So anything that you see is, that you, yeah. and we know that it's a big melting pot of, of whatever. The things that people pick out often are like flags sitting on top of something that's good that they like. They don't know what that is. And so they call it the shape that person was making or the, so people can't really see acting. It's not really visible to the naked eye. It's Mm. sort of, you have to be there with it. But when they know it's good, they go, Oh, that was good. So it it must be because, you know, they, that person did that virtuosic thing with their body or they, and, which is why, you know, actors who transform themselves get more plaudits than people who do really simple, diaphanous, much more invisible work. Mm. It generally doesn't get the notice because mm. people don't know how to write about it. Mm-hmm. Because here we are trying to, well, I'm blathering on, you're not, <laughs> you're giving, <laughs> giving me a rope to hang myself. <laughs> you know, it's hard, isn't it, to get to the bottom of like, what's good about this stuff? It's good to talk about this stuff <laughs> I'm so glad you think so I, it's, it's fucking great to listen to you I love listening to this stuff I really do because I'm I'm acutely aware that I'm finding you at a at a very particular moment Bill Nye if you've listened to the podcast this, this, this great line about agreeing to do a play is like agreeing to be ill for three months you know and you are if you think that's a reasonable description of what it's like to do a play a sort of sickness, you are ill with this play, this part, yeah. and you're at a particular moment that you've just opened. These reviews have come out. You've read them ballsily, and you are now metabolizing what that means for your, how it connects to, I suppose, your brain, but also just that instinct, which is so clearly of a kind of supernatural order in you. And having your instinct mediated by somebody, by people writing about it and being yeah. overtly public about what it means. Well, yeah. And also the audience's experience uh, is mediated by those things as well, if they, if they yeah, correct sure. them. But I mean, another reason I think I like to read them is like, I want, you know, I, I kind of want to know what's in the room. One of the things that's weird about reviews is that because different people have different attitudes to you know different practice uh, you know some people read them some people like to get a flavor from their agent yeah. some people don't want to know anything about it yeah. some people read them pretend they don't read them you know but like the the the, the building is different the day after the press totally. reviews have been out than it was the day before yeah. and what's what's slightly odd about that is that you don't really know. Suddenly, you're this group of people who's like worked really hard to create something together, had all, all, all kinds of disagreements, all kinds of love affairs and whatever. I, I mean, artistic love affairs. And then suddenly, everyone's in a different space and no one's talking about it. Right. We don't sit down and go like, okay, so what does everybody feel about the reviews? And do we agree with that? And like, which bits... We don't sort of sit and have a therapy session. Do you, do about you wish? It. Do you wish? I kind we could? of wish we did. I suddenly, yeah. I was thinking this. I was thinking like, wouldn't it be good to? I mean, it would have to be done with real skill, I think. Yeah. But you know, to some extent, that that's what a director's job is to hold a bunch of people with different instincts and different ideas, and to, to kind of 
pull all that together and get everybody pulling in the same direction, isn't it? Yeah. But exactly at the moment when the director leaves you, yes. all these other fuckers come in <laughs> and give you their pennies worth. Yeah. You know, and like I, I really mean, you know, sometimes the praise is as damaging as the yeah, yeah, yeah. as the criticism because one person gets praise and someone else in the company feels a little bit overlooked or whatever, and yeah. and the kind of dynamics of that, and so quite a lot of the job becomes to reconnect with uh-huh. everybody, but nobody's really talking about the elephant in the room, and yeah. I, it's quite exhausting in a way. And yet, vibrationally, as you say, everyone is aware of it. Good, bad, mixed. Yeah, and an audience is too. Yeah. So I just want to know what they've, yeah. what, what, what I might be play, talking to. Right, you know? makes complete sense. Well, how did the play come to you? How, how did Pygmalion emerge? Was it something you took to Richard, who you've worked, Richard Jones, the director, who you worked with before on Harry Ape, right? At this very building. That's right. Um, I didn't take it to him. He brought it to me. Um, we had met a number of times over the years since doing Harry Ape and talked about doing something else together and around about the time I was here doing the 47th mm. about a year ago 47th play about Trump play about uh, Donald Trump who is trying to be the 47th was the 45th that's right but it wants to be the 47th be president 47th. Mike Bartlett wrote this be. play uh, yes indeed yeah. Mike Bartlett wrote this play projecting him into the future yeah. as 47 terrifying we would talk more about that but carry on you were asking how this play came about yeah. and Richard brought it to me and uh, I thought really why basically I mean what we're what we're trying to do with this production is to dig the play out from all the assumptions that people make about it and I was one of them mm. uh, and I went and read it and actually even after I reread it I still was carrying a bit of like I'm not sure what I think about this I think basically unless you kind of excavate it from a whole set of assumptions about what it is and just do the play like mm. a new play, it's amazing how this happens. People seem seem to sort of look at a play that's very clearly saying one thing and they're so conditioned to think it must be saying another mm. that they kind of bend it into the shape of what they think they were going to see. Anyway, so, so do you think that's happening with this? That this is the play about the humiliation or the sort of, you know, the human experiment of taking this flower girl from Covent Garden and making a passing her off for a bet by Henry Higgins as uh, someone who could pass in any echelon of society, the most sophisticated. And so essentially about a sort of Frankenstein's experiment on a human being and a woman. And it's very clearly a play about that. And you think that perhaps people are willfully seeing it as something else now. Because I'm pretty sure that was Shaw's intention. I I think people want to see... People want to see a romance. He, he, interestingly enough, I think at some point he oh. called it a romance. But people want to see a love, a love story, right? Which is, of course, the Greek uh, myth. I don't think. Well, the Greek myth is about um, a man falling in love with his creation, right? And it coming to life. I think Pygmalion is is an ironic title because, uh. to some extent, he takes a living thing. And the middle section of the play is about her having the the life somehow removed from her. Yeah. Um, or at least her independence taken away and her spirit and yeah. her the vivacity. And this is a really good play and there's a lots of different ways to do it. What struck me when I first read it was that I definitely didn't want to do was a production that apologised for... So it's a play that, that's quite an uncomfortable read 
possibly an uncomfortable watch because of the kind of the politics of it yeah. and, and and the the, cru- the cruelty and the, ca- the apparent callousness with which this woman's um, life is is played with but because you know my fair lady sort of is a love story yeah. and higgins is i mean i don't know that so well so i don't want to kind of box that up but 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 i basically think you know people who've come expecting to see my fair lady expect a happy ending and 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 want to take an attitude which is like well, Higgins, he's kind of, oh, he's a lot, but we, lo- we love him really because he's charming. And if right. they don't see that, they right. feel cheated. Right. That's not what Shaw no. is writing, I sure. don't think. I think he's writing something about, well, I wanted to do one of two things. One is to lean into the cruelty and go, this yeah. is what the play is. Yeah. Let's confront that. How do we feel about that? In other words, play a Higgins who was aware of his power and did it anyway. And you might call that cruel or even sadistic yeah i was interested in that version or a version in which higgins is cruel but does not intend it in other words that he has an impact that is separate to his intention Mm. and that seemed to be the more interesting choice than the kind of avenue we went down where and it's also very much in the play where higgins he he, he struggles to empathize with what others are feeling Mm. or to and I, I think he's a kind of visionary egalitarian. He, he believes in a world where, wouldn't it be amazing if, if everybody could sound the same, mm. like having a kind of a vocal uniform, nobody would be restricted by the sound of their voice from getting a job in, in a flower shop or reading the news or whatever it might mm. be. In other words, he's got a kind of egalitarian utopia mm. in mind. And I think the psychology that underpins that is somebody who's so acutely aware of their own difference mm. that they have become obsessed with uh, copying others and 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 trying to to like a detective to work out why it is that some people seem to be looked at this way and others that way because he can't quite put it together. So he's he's sort of trying to codify what it is that makes pe- some people liked by some right, people and right. others by others and uh, so on the one hand he's got this kind of intellectual project that is about emancipating people and on the other hand he's just trying to sort of figure out like a kid in the playground you know what why everybody does it a certain way and then what you can do is have a higgins that people might that you can explain and understand him without necessarily apologizing for him or being charmed by him yeah exactly and I think when I first read it, coming back to the point, like when I first read it, I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do sort of urbane. I don't think that's me. And then and I spoke to Richard about it. And he was like, well, good, because I absolutely don't want that either. And we talk, started talking about these other ideas. I'm, I'm going to need to reset myself again because I can uh, feel myself um, losing um, any articulacy, which is very frustrating. No. In fact, by the way, that is absolutely not what it sounds like. I, I suffer. I, I experience this a lot, which is 42 different conversational options yeah. that I can never quite get into the right, in my own brain, yeah. delivery system for how this one should lead to this one. Yeah. So that can often feel quite overwhelming, particularly when you're so passionate about the yeah. thing and you're in the state, you're sick with it, to use Bill yeah. Nye's expression. It is a great phrase, isn't it? Because it's something so... 
acted upon or sort of spell a fever that's the, that, that won't break yet. So let's talk about these these monsters. I'm so I'm so one of the things I loved about your performance, which I thought was when did you see it extraordinary last Saturday, sort right. of Saturday matinee. And I had to rush back to, I don't know you anyway. I do know John Marquez, who plays um, Eliza's dad. We did a play, wonderful John Marquez, touched with some genius. We we did a play here together, actually, and another play at at the National. One of the things I found thrilling about your performance was the absolute lack of apology for him. Now that sounds like a sort of entry level requirement for being an actor. There's that fantastic, do you know that Spanish actress, Victoria Abril, who talks about actors being sort of defense lawyers for their, for their, yeah, the characters nice. they play. You know, that you're always advocating for them. It doesn't come into it to try to, you know, sort of you own up to whatever an objective view of them might be. But I'm curious about how that sits with you playing these extraordinary, the extraordinary extremities that you've played. Trump in the 47th, Rupert Murdoch in Inc. I suppose we could talk about the, um, the character in The Hairy Ape too. But, but these, these people who are, you know, really, first of all, the, the, the first two are intensely well known to us. First of all, do you feel any discomfort at living with them? And secondly, do you feel any discomfort at portraying them, however unapologetic you are about them? Is there ever any... Not really. No. I mean, simply put, no, I don't feel discomfort. I feel discomfort living with the play, the sickness analogy. You know, I I feel... I wish this wasn't so. I feel exhausted by the prospect I kind of can't wait for the run to be over, huh. if I'm really honest. Yeah. And I'm trying to work on that. And that's why I probably got on my soapbox about this thing about f- flow in the black box. And I know that when what I aspire to is to go out tonight like I've never done it before. And then I would feel excited. Or I would feel so. I mean, I should feel so. I am, by the way, enormously grateful to get to play these roles, and I and I love it. And I, the the reason I want it to be over is I want to I want it to be over and to have done it well. Mm. It means so much to me to do it well that the burden of like each night's audience, like you have to throw all the old performances away. They're only going to see it once. Mm. So if something's going well, the kind of the sense of doom of like, but what if it doesn't go well tonight is almost unbearable Mm. and if there was only ever one performance like I love first previews I love press nights I love the kind of we not rehearse the last act but we've got to go over the top I I never feel more alive (laughs) I love the rehearsal when you don't know what you're doing so why can't I carry that into like the 233rd performance well the answer is you're tired you've got last night's performance kind of sitting on your shoulder and whatever so like I don't feel any discomfort about those two things, but I feel massive discomfort about just having to keep on doing it and keep on sort of making sure it's not worse than it was. That's because of the obligation to the part, the audience, to your craft, but not because of the extremity of who you're playing. Not really. Not because of their imprint somewhere. Don't think so. No, okay. I mean, I think that another thing about physicality is that if... 
I often find, as we've discussed, like almost involuntarily, I'm making quite larger than life or sort of, I don't know, you know, maybe cartoonish. That sounds a slightly reductive word, but, you know, like big shapes with my body. And it doesn't hurt because it's coming from Mm. inside. Mm. When you get attached to the shape, which does happen, and fall in love with a, or whatever, that's when you start to get, uh, you know, repetitive strain injury or whatever. That starts to hurt, or, you know, like the shape you might be making with your neck. And you find like, oh, I'm doing that. It's, it is good. It does communicate something. And it, it, it did come from a truthful impulse. So it's not like it's gone bad, but I'm no longer doing it because of the impulse. I'm doing it because I know it, came from an impulse and yeah, it's slightly yeah, yeah. different and you, your muscles start to tell yeah. and like that's tiring are you um, feeling that right now no i've kind of gone past it. I, I, I was feeling that in the week week of press night we had two weeks of previews and yeah. last week i was suddenly beaten up and i was like oh it's because i'm i'm kind of copying something i'm not doing it and i think i kind of dealt with it quicker than usual i dealt with it by the end of the week i was sort of chucked a few things away yeah. I'm always very curious about the post-show life of a of a part in us. It, you know what? How these things continue to stay with us or not? I just saw. Do you remember about, parts? Uh, yeah. Funny enough, I was having a bike ride yesterday and 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 couldn't stop this wash of Mark Antony coming to me in a very in a very odd, quite upsetting way. In a funny sort of way, it felt like a sort of. Um, Quite know how to describe it. Felt the ghost of something that I wanted to get back to, like a sort of like a kind of loved one who died, and I was trying to resummon them or something. It was very, it was completely involuntary. I didn't have any much say in it, but it was just sort of you know these lines I was saying to myself over and over and over. When did you do that? I did that, uh, gosh, two weeks uh, after my father died. And maybe that was the link, because I had just, it was the 10-year anniversary, this is a total tangent, 10-year anniversary of my dad's death last week. And so maybe these strange loops that we have in our hearts, our brains, were, was, was sort of replaying that. And I'd been to a poetry reading at the Coronet Theatre, an amazing poet called Nick Laird, on Sunday, who has this extraordinary sort of epic poem about the death of his father during COVID in Antrim Hospital. And he read that, and it was, I know the poem very well, but it was a shattering experience. So it was probably all those. So that's my own little reverie. Do you have any of those echoes, shadows that come back to you with those people you've played? As particularly those real life ones who are constantly within our vision in some way. No, I don't think I do really. I mean, um, almost the opposite. I was, I was, when I got here, the last time I'd been here, that they've, Tarted the dressing rooms up, but mm. I was in the same dressing room and I was doing Donald Trump, and I kind of can't remember what I did, mm. you know. And it was really specific mm. and really deliberate. It's not like I wasn't a, like I was taken over by the museum was was unaware of what I was. I was highly aware of every bit of that performance, mm. but I have I don't know maybe I, maybe if I had to, I'd just sort of slip back into that. I don't feel connected to it no, at all. No. It's very strange. Remember bits of text, particularly if it's in verse. I mean, I, I find that, like the musicality of a text is a big thing. You know, like this, the sound of something and the kind of rhythm of something. But really? No. When you came, apparently, I never saw it. And God knows I wish I had. I, I was living in America and I, I didn't get back nearly enough. But um, 
apparently your first line as Trump was, I know, I know, you hate me. Do you think it's ever, I did see you do, do ink in New York, which you were, was extraordinary. But do you think it's possible when you have a first line like that? I know, I know, you hate me. Do you think it's possible for us? Curious about how, what theater does to those real life monsters. And I'm not talking about humanizing them because they are humans to begin with, you know, but does it, does it warp something? Is it possible to hate Trump after he comes on and Mike Bartlett's given him that first line? Whether we should or we shouldn't hate him. Does theatre do something that's essentially heroic? Let's put it like that. I don't know. It's a really good question. I mean, I could waffle on about it, but I'm not sure I'd be any closer to the answer. Do you remember, do you remember the first Blair election, uh, 97? And that famous, that famous thing. I just of, played Tony Blair. Actually. Yes, of course. Yeah. And that famous thing of, um, did you stay up for Portillo? You remember, uh, if you, you remember that seat. he lost his seat and it was like sort of, you know, that was a great benchmark. If you're a labor supporter, that was the night when all the citadels fell mm. and Portillo was like sort of four o'clock in the morning or something. Well, I did stay up for Portillo and what I was so struck by was it didn't happen on stage, but it was a theatrical moment. You never got to see the crowd, all of whom I would have, as a Labour supporter, have identified with, baying, you know, sort of, fuck off, get out, you know, bye-bye, you're over. What you did see was the single figure of Michael Portillo, <laughs> man, I have never had any sympathy for. In the singularity of him against the mob, all I could think of was the dehumanization of them and the increased humanization of him. Interesting, yeah. And it made me think of Coriolanus. You know, it made me think of however much we may find that person's politics distasteful, there is something about the humanization, the, the, the hyper-humanization of what happens when they are the subject. Yeah. Does that make I, sense? I think that's a very good point and makes me think of the power of cinema because the cinematic close-up the sheer scale of the reasons you know film actors get lauded in a way that television actors don't is just yeah. their faces are yeah. 50 times bigger yeah. it's as simple as that yeah. and the power of that i think in theater that there's a there's an equivalent and it's what you're talking about which is like who who gets to stand on that pedestal who gets the soliloquy yeah. who gets to stand alone on stage who gets the theatrical close-up as it were yeah. and I expect you're right. I know that I spoke to a lot of Americans who came to see the 47th who seemed really conflicted about the experience. Mm. And often it tended to be Americans living in America, not my American friends who live here or whatever, but people I spoke to who were really kind of uneasy that we were dramatizing this stuff because it felt so... And I think confused that... I think they thought we were laughing at it mm. you know which i suppose we the play is laughing at it in a very british way i suppose mm. using humor to explore something that is chillingly present and real and potential mm. so i don't think people were kind of making fun of american politics but i think a lot of people who were living that much closer to the reality of what's happening in america sort of found themselves feeling uh, really uneasy about the play and coming back to the point I mean maybe that has something to do with 
I, I think they were people, all of those people I'm talking about were really against Trump and terrified by the prospect that the play was staging, which was one in which he finds his way back onto the, you know, it, it was, a, for people who don't know, it, written in iambic pentameter in the style of a Shakespearean history play. In fact, borrowing tropes from uh, you know, Mark Antony's speech to in Julius Caesar and all, all these kind of King King Lear, the, the setup of the first scene, essentially King Lear and and Lear's daughters, and sort of an enjoyably quoting bits of Shakespeare in terms of structure, but to imagine a future in which Trump, who seems to have kind of t- taken himself out to Mar-a-Lago and retired, builds himself back into the the, the front runner, and then really the play is about what Kamala Harris ends up um, being sworn in as president because Biden kind of sees a ghost the night before the debate and realizes he can't do it, and so uh, Kamala Harris is sworn in as president and fights the fights the debates against Trump, and then really it's about her dilemma of and the Democrats' dilemma: how do you fight a Trump? How do you fight the Trump playbook? Uh, how do you fight? A populist who is prepared to do anything mm. and um, whose base don't engage in the kind of according to the rules of engagement that have right. been set by a democracy. What do you do? Do you lock him up because you're playing straight into his hands? And so it was like chillingly prescient. And I think, uh, anyway, all these people I spoke to who were very anti Trump living in America with that potential future staring them in the face i think were really uneasy to see it and maybe it's as simple as they felt it was somehow heroizing something that they they thought was but if the theater isn't doing that i don't know what it's sure, for sure. Like, yeah, you know, we, got right. a, we put it on stage not to put it on a pedestal or heroize it but to, right. to look at it yeah and to, yeah yeah to hold it up to the light and go what do we think about that and maybe what we think is no that's horrific i find that yeah Appalling. Yeah. Similarly, with this play, you know, I, I can imagine that a production of this play that delivered Higgins as a sort of sadist, which is definitely possible, would be very distasteful to watch. Mm. And if people know that the exercise there is to go like, what's it's a bit like therapy, isn't it? You know, sort of collective therapy. We look at something. If we have a strong response to it, we learn something about ourselves. Mm. But it's not necessarily the way to sell tickets. Right. And it's not necessarily the way to... I think we also we live in a culture where if theatres are pro- programming stuff that is, I don't know, triggering or upsetting to people, that the theatre can come under fire weirdly. I mean, that's what theatre's sort of for. So, but, but we do live in that culture. And I think, you know, one has to be alert to that. And also some people that, you know, they come to the theatre for entertainment and for fun and relaxation. And that's completely valid. You know, you don't always want to be shriven and kind of taught the lesson. But I do sort of think that grappling with stuff that makes us really uncomfortable is, is like a big part of the function of what yeah. we're all doing here. Did you ever talk about doing it in the States? Was there ever chat about doing 47? Yeah, in the way that, you know, you've heard it all sure, before. Sure. So like it was a... I think it, it was fascinating. It would have been thrilling. We yeah. were all very keen to do it. And I'm sure conversations were had. And I don't know what came of that. I mean, I imagine that 
I mean, you talk about making people uncomfortable because I was yeah. in New York at the time when they did the famous Julius Caesar in Central Park when the guy playing yes. Caesar was a Trump impersonation. Yes. And even as we know, it's a total misreading of the play to think that Trump is being somehow uh, 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 condemned through that play because the killing of him doesn't go very well. But they had to, you know, they had to have bodyguards taking them out of the actors, out of security, taking them out of the theatre. Because it got so heated and so many performances were disrupted, and that's a it that's would have a been actually it would have been you know like yeah. electric and probably quite scary to yeah. do that yeah. play. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe we maybe we still could. The play is set in the the very near future, and right. actually, the future it imagined some of it has already passed. Yeah. So you know, we'd have had to kind of do it really quickly and I was off to do another project sure, so sure, sure. I think it just didn't quite stack up I sure. think, but, yeah. Bertie I have to let you go because yeah. even though I could talk to you literally all night can I ask you one more question yeah you can and Tell um, me. I, I sort of feel frustrated that I've oh um, no don't uh, waffled I honestly think that's the nature of the deal I think with someone like you who is who is so conscientious about trying to be honest about what you really think about this stuff and yeah. also so engaged with the subject. So, you know, this is, this is your life. This is your life and you are doing it in front of a paying audience tonight. I think it's unbelievably difficult to corral these things. If, if I'm, if I'm understanding what your sense of dissatisfaction is, but I can guarantee you there won't be any for anybody who listens to this because it's just a magnificent insight into Everything you're going through. What you said about the 42 conversations is is exactly what goes on for me (laughs) when we get onto this stuff. Because there are so many things that one wants to say. Well, I'd love to come back and have a follow-up with you the next show you do. Because it would be a fascinating insight into how that's striking you in relation to this. It's, It's only ever... Opening doors, you know, yeah. it can't be a sense of here's my beautiful room with all my thoughts neatly laid out. And it, but it's it's wonderful to hear you talk about it. All right, I've got I've got two, possibly very three, very quick things. Has there been a show? Oh, by the way, can I just ask you one very prosaic question? You did six hundred and fifty performances. I read, if that's true, of. Miss Trunchbull, yeah, of Matilda, six hundred and fifty-two. Six hundred and fifty shitting too. I, I mean, you talked about wanting this show to sort of be over for the for the sense of obligation to it. How did you do it? Was did it bring you to your knees? Were you? Yeah, were you... frequently. I mean, but actually, I loved I loved doing that. But yeah, human beings aren't meant to do exactly the same thing no. every night. No. At exactly the same time, in more, it's particularly with a musical, you know, if it's sure. a, a show like Matilda, so finely wrought, and there's there's always room for you know some flexibility. That's part of the the gig is to do the same thing but different. Mm. But it's so specific and it's underscored from beginning to end. So there's a very odd experience doing that again and again and again, and you go a little bit crazy. I think. Did you? Oh yeah. 100%. And I did it in three different... I did it in Stratford for four months, which yeah. was kind of easy. And then, because it was just, you know, wonderful. And we were... It was a huge hit and it was new. And nobody... It was amazing because no one knew it was going to be a hit. Yes. And then it was an enormous hit. And, and then when we did it in the West End, I did nine months in the West End. 
And then I went and did it again on Broadway and did six months there. So I, I did 652 performances, but not consecutively. Sure. I had kind of breaks and I don't think I could have done any longer than I did. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm completely in awe of people who do you yeah. know, several years yeah. in a show. Such a discipline. But there is an enormous satisfaction in knowing how hard it is and still doing a really good show and yes. knowing how kind of twisted up you might be inside and it's quite dark sometimes you yeah. know feeling like i've i've got to do it again tonight i have to you know it's like a kind of it is an obligation yeah. and i never really relax until i've come off stage yeah. and then you know until i go to bed and then i get up the next morning you that sort of pressure is there the sickness the sickness it's it is like there. that totally. but it has an enormous pride in being able to kind yeah. of carry yourself yeah. just you know with that and what a great you know what a privilege as well if that's your the cross you have to bear True. it's an enormous privilege sure, so sure. it's like and you've and it also the sense you know the sense of kind of validation you get from having foot from just carrying that yeah bulo. and to have been the fresh footprints in the snow to have yeah. made the thing up you know it, it came like a fucking comet it, it it was such an extraordinary cultural moment what are the shows you've either seen or done that have changed you do you think is that possible to say i mean all of them to some extent but right. um that that changed me it changed my i'm sure it changed my career you know the kind of you know when you get applauded for things lauded it makes a big difference and the opportunities it gives you and and the confidence it gives you. I did a play called Rope with Roger Michel. The great Roger Michel. Yeah. That just comes into my mind because I always think of it whenever I think back over the stuff that I've done. And I think I loved that production so much. And I think it's possibly some of my best work, but I just, I loved working with Roger. I loved the way he supported one's instincts such a fine touch it was such a light touch you couldn't you couldn't feel it was like he was steering the bicycle with his knees you know mm. it was so such a light touch and yet such a really clear sense of being directed mm. and the experience of of doing good work makes you better working with great directors or great teachers whoever or great other great actors Whenever one does something well, you kind of record a little bit of the muscle memory of what that was. And I think it makes you better in future because you're like, mm. well, remember when I did that and it was, I didn't think that's how you got there, but I risked that and it was better. Maybe I'll try that here. So I think kind of each good thing that you do, there's some learning in there. Like rehearsals are fun because everything is unknown and, and it, it's really easy to be relaxed and creative. And then the, cl the further you get from that, blank page the more tempting it is to and unnecessary it is to kind of pull in technique and i have to work you know because i guess i have good technique i think there's some good technique and i'm proud of it and it's good and it works for me and i have to kind of work for that not to be everything and to get back to that state of like the blank canvas and so the really good artists whether they're other actors or directors who one works with they change you by reminding you that that's always open to you right. if you can kind of risk be if you can risk being less good than you were last night 
you might get to be better kind of thing. Yeah. But it's really hard to do. When you've got something really shiny and you've polished it up to a bright sheen, it'll be more than good enough to like give them that tonight. Yeah. It's really hard to go, but what if I just put that in the drawer yeah. and go back to the drawing board a bit? It's, it's so difficult. And I think Rod, something about the way Roger directed made that possible. I mean, what a wonderful man he was, yeah. eh? God, what a terrible, terrible loss. He was just an extraordinary, yeah, he really was, and beloved by so many people. You know, it's so wonderful to see you and meet you and talk to you and to get into the weeds and out of them again about this very, very knotty thing. This very, very difficult, very, you know, hard to articulate, very magnificent pursuit that you, that you, you do so to sort of ninja level. It's just extraordinary. <laughs> what I also get is how much this costs you, how, how much the sickness is a real sickness, you know, how much depth it takes up in you. You know, you talk very frankly about <laughs> wishing you didn't have to do it tonight and it was over for, for a myriad of different reasons. But and I think every actor will recognize that idea. Simon Russell Beale said something similar. He said, if I found out that the show was off tonight, yeah. I'd be thrilled. <laughs> it's sort of excruciating. So but I suppose you, it But if you never question. got to do it again, you'd be bereft. Oh, of it, course. It's such a strange kind it's of... just like um, I was on my bike ride with Mark Anthony. Just yeah. like, well, why can't I get back to that? Yeah. I wish I could. So the question is really a sort of simple and, a, and an utterly impossible to answer one. But why do you keep coming back? Why? You, you, you are acclaimed on the, you know, it's in other media. You could, you could presumably not do plays that are very hard and don't play as well. Why do you keep coming back? Because I'm good at it. It's nice to be good at something. And it's hard. Like, it's good to do things that are hard. Like, you don't, you don't, you don't want an unchallenging life. It's nice to be asked. Some ego in it. Some of the most well-respected people in the world ring you up and say, would you like to do a play? It feels amazing. It's mm. quite hard to say no. It's good to do things that are hard if you can do them well. It's good to try anyway. I really do feel like, notwithstanding everything else I've said, I feel at home in a rehearsal room and on a stage in a way. It comes naturally, if not easily. Yeah. It doesn't come easily. It comes naturally. Yeah. It comes. I don't know why that is, yeah. but I'm in the right job. Yeah. And I'm so grateful. Like it's such a weird accident that I ended up doing this job. I mean, let's not go there, but like I didn't do any acting at school. I sort of bumped into it along the way and realised I was good at it. And, and bumped into it through. And now the... I get to do it at the highest level. I'm I'm so grateful. So I mean, please want to sort of say just to cancel out what I've said about any 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 impression I've given that it's sort of a load to carry and that it co I mean it does cost one because it's important yeah. but like it's the best job in the world right. and why would I want to do anything else other than the thing I was kind of put on this earth to do I mean that sounds a bit grand again but like that's how I feel I feel yeah. like I can do something really well carry on doing it until yeah. you draw your last breath and yeah it, sometimes it's sometimes you think oh, I could have a much easier life I don't want an easy life <laughs> I want an exciting <laughs> life I want to and how amazing to get to do something where other artists, are, you know, give you the time of day to come and talk to you about your practice. That cannot imagine anything, any higher accolade than other people who do what you do, thinking that what your contribution is interesting. It just, it, well, I feel so full up with it. It's amazing. It's the best job in the world. 
when it's going well. Viva la sickness. That's yeah. great. Mate, it's just glorious to watch you work, as I got the privilege to do on Saturday watching Pygmalion, and it is just as glorious to talk to you about it. Thank well, you. Thanks so much for giving me the space to unburden myself. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Bertie Carvel has left the stage door. What a fascinating portrait of an artist wrestling with creation, didn't you think? I just thought it was so moving how he wanted to really engage with everything he was going through. The the critics had just been in um, only a few days before, as you heard in the interview, he read those reviews. The play, as written by Shaw, is as hot a political topic as it ever was in this day and age. It's essentially about social engineering. This working class woman is taken for a bet by two men of privilege and made to speak like a duchess. She's broken down and then essentially discarded as a sort of scientific experiment. And the play posits all those questions. And so it's already a deeply emotive subject. Some of the critics loved it, some really didn't go for this interpretation, but I just thought what was so moving was Bertie's engagement with that moment and us being able to hear his listeners, I think, how fresh the sense of inquiry and confusion is too strong a word for it, but a sense of what the intellectual and emotional knots are that need to be untied in order for the artist to carry on doing what they're doing. And I thought he 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 publicly wrestled with that in this chat. And I and I thank him so much for that because it takes huge amounts of honesty and candor and openness. And I feel deeply privileged that he wanted to. Thank you, Bertie. I really, I really do appreciate it. Um, Next week, my guests are a married couple, and we recorded it live at German Street Theatre. They are Alessandro Nivola and Emily Mortimer, and they have (laughs) some fantastic stories to tell about their lives in the theatre. Not just this generation, but going back generations too. Please join me next week. Thank you to my producer, Ben Backhouse. Thanks to the musicians, Iggy Cake and Phoebe Cake. Thank you to the loyal stage manager. And thank you to Acast for your podcast support. And thank you to you for listening. Please join me next week. You won't be disappointed. Stage, stage.